Hello and welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly podcast. Since 2000, a large and complex global infrastructure has emerged to help finance public health improvement in low- and middle-income countries. These institutions have helped drive historic improvements in child survival, HIV mortality, and access to modern contraception. Yet serious questions have arisen about their long-term sustainability, their effects on country-led health systems, and whether they create incentives that are misaligned with long-term public health in part. Today on CID's Speaker Series podcast, Jason Keane, Master's in Public Administration and International Development student at the Harvard Kennedy School, interviews Rachel Silverman, Assistant Director of Global Health Policy and a Senior Policy Analyst at the Center for Global Development, who gives us a brief overview of the current health financing architecture. She also discusses three hot topics in global health financing, which are fiscal and programmatic accountability and incentive models, strategies to transition countries away from reliance on external financing, and the movement away from vertical, disease-focused financing streams toward a more comprehensive, holistic vision for universal health coverage, or UHC. Thanks, Rachel, for being with us today. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Center for Global Development and your role at the center? Sure, and thank you for having me here. It's really nice to join the conversation. So the Center for Global Development, we've been around about 15 years. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan, and independent think tank based mostly in Washington, D.C., and then we also have an office in London. All of those three adjectives are very important. So we are nonprofit. We are working in the public interest. We are nonpartisan. We are not associated with any political party or ideology. And we are independent, which means that we try to really be an independent voice in the international development space, really speak truth to power sometimes, say things that are potentially not popular, but need to be part of the conversation and try and shift the entire international development conversation towards greater use of evidence, evidence-based policy, evidence-based practice. So we have a pretty wide remit in terms of what we consider. We tend to come at things from an economics and financing perspective, not to say that's the only important thing in international development, but that's a bit of our comparative advantage and perspective on things. We look at a wide range of issues that affect the lives of the poor in low and middle income countries and also issues of global cooperation where we all need to work together to achieve some of our most pressing global problems. So this means that we work on issues of global health, which is personally where I work, but also migration, education, trade, sustainable development, finance, climate, quite a few different issues where they are big picture issues, but they affect all of our lives and particularly the lives of the poor. So I am a senior policy analyst and assistant director of global health policy at the Center for Global Development, where I help lead our global health portfolio, which looks predominantly at global health financing. So how money in global health gets mobilized, gets distributed, and how it works to generate health impact. So maybe just jumping right into it, can you talk a little bit about the funding architecture, namely who the main players are, what are the primary health focuses, and how this space has changed over time? Sure. Well, I think it's useful to think about the different players on sort of two axes, right? So one is there are bilateral institutions where it's sort of a one-on-one relationship, one donor government is in charge of the institution, and there are multilateral institutions where many different governments and players come together to help govern and set the direction. Then there are also sort of general funders, funders who will kind of fund anything in the health production system, and funders who are targeted to a specific disease, a specific 
issue area. And really their funding is focused in quite tightly on that issue. So for the targeted bilateral funds, the biggest ones we see are in the United States. We have the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, which I believe is still the largest by funding, about $6 billion a year. We also have the President's Malaria Initiative, which is quite a bit smaller. I think it's sort of in the $500 to $800 million range. And both of these programs are targeted vertical programs focusing on the specific diseases in their remit. We also have bilaterally in the United States, we have the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, which is more of a general funder. Other countries have their own bilateral aid agencies. For example, the U.K. has Department for International Development. And then there is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is a large private foundation, but very influential in global health across the entirety of the global health space. Then we have the multilateral funds. So in the general sense, we have the World Bank and now the Global Financing Facility, which are more focused on health systems and might be funding into national plans across the health system. We also have a number of targeted multilateral funds. So we have the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. This is a large public-private partnership. It has currently spending about $4 billion a year on TB, HIV, and malaria. And this is a partnership of many different governments, different foundations, the private sector, country governments, all coming together in this large partnership. So you had a really nice graphic which the <laughs> listeners could see of just sort of splitting into those four quadrants. Which of those quadrants is the biggest? Which one is growing the most? And sort of how does it kind of go from there? Sure. Well, I think the targeted funds tend to be the biggest on the whole. They're probably about equally split between the U.S. bilateral programs and the multilateral programs. Bilaterally, PEPFAR is enormous and really has an outsized impact on the overall financing landscape. But on the targeted side, we have Gavi, we have the Global Fund, we have UNFPA, Unitaid, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. But really, most of the money is in these sort of targeted funds and programs. And then which historically have been the most effective healthcare initiatives and where have we seen the least amount of impact and how much of this is due to interventions being targeted or ver- vertical initiatives versus ones that are requiring more state capacity and accountability and uh, coordination with governments? You know, the tough thing is that it's actually quite difficult to say. <laughs> There has not been as much rigorous evaluation of health programs as I would like there to be. So in the global health space, we distinguish between two different ways of thinking about effectiveness. So the first is efficacy. Does a pill work? If I give you this pill, will it cure malaria? But the second is effectiveness. Okay, easy to say, if we give one person this pill, it works. But if we have a whole program to give pills to everybody with malaria, that might not work the same way, even though we know the pill is effective. And there's not necessarily that much evaluation of effectiveness at scale. So I've been a part of a book called Million Saved, which profiles case studies of successful health programs that have undergone rigorous evaluation. And there are quite a few. So I am a big believer that global health aid works and can generate really impressive improvements in global health. But we need to do a better job measuring it. I think some of the interventions that we know have worked, at least in some places, are malaria control. If you look, the number of malaria cases per year has about been halved since, I think, 2000. HIV treatment is certainly a very efficacious intervention, and we see rapidly declining deaths across the world from AIDS. 
Other interventions have been more difficult, even though we know there are efficacious technologies. So the number of tuberculosis cases every year have stayed pretty constant, even though we have somewhat effective treatment because it's a long course of treatment. It's difficult to consistently implement. It's been hard to really get the epidemic under control. So it really depends. A lot of it's context specific. What works in one country might not work somewhere else. And that's part of why it's really important to evaluate programs because until you really put them out in your country, in your local context, it's really hard to say if they'll work the way you hope they work. Switching gears a little bit, you talked about the problem of transition where low-income countries are getting richer and thus becoming ineligible for particular types of aid and graduating out of their programs. When do you think it's appropriate to give aid to sort of richer countries but that might have populations or people that are still sort of below a certain low-income threshold and still have you know health issues that need to be saved? It's a really challenging question. As you say, right now, the majority of the world's poor live in middle-income countries. And so if you just cut off middle-income countries, there is a risk that these populations will not be served. At the same time, it's important for citizens to hold their governments accountable for funding the programs, funding the health system, the services that they need. And you know, I think you sometimes see in countries like India, for example, where there are many people still living in very extreme poverty, yet there is also quite a bit of wealth, particularly in the cities. There are government initiatives for space programs, for example. And it's what some of my colleagues have identified as the priorities ditch, that once you graduate from aid, there's a bit of a priorities ditch before the government necessarily starts investing its own money in the amounts that I personally (laughs) think it should. And, you know, I think there's a risk that in the interim, people are caught in the middle and suffer as a result, which is really, really unfortunate and problematic. At the same time, if you continue funding aid, even for countries that should in theory have the ability to pay for it, but are not, there's a risk it creates a perverse incentive, right? It gives them an excuse to not fund the services their population needs. And it tells other countries, you know what, we also should not invest in this because if we do, the international funders won't fund us. If we invest in roads, if we invest in education, okay, great, we'll get international funding for the health system. It's a really complicated question and not one with an easy answer. I tend to like progressive co-financing approaches. And this is what Gavi does, for example, which is that it requires even the poorest governments to pay a little bit for vaccination. And as those countries get richer, the share of the cost for each dose that they need to bear increases until eventually it's the entirety of the dose. And I think that's a good way of phasing out aid while making sure that the interventions remain covered during that period. But it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything. And I guess it's my understanding that most of these organizations use income per capita, GNI per capita metric. Does that feel a little bit crude? Are there better ways that we can sort of put, you know, country specific indicators there so that, you know, we know when countries are getting closer to graduating? It is certainly a little bit crude, I think on a number of different levels. I think on the first level is that it does not necessarily tell you very much about health. So there are countries that could have these higher income levels and yet 
have very serious health problems. So Nigeria is a middle-income country and has extremely serious health problems. It does not tell you about the level of inequality, the number of people living in extreme poverty. It does not tell you about conflict or instability or state capacity to deliver services. It does not tell you about whether the state has the political will to fund some of the most disadvantaged groups, sometimes ethnic or racial minorities or religious minorities, sometimes marginalized populations uh, such as sex workers. So it does not entirely tell you whether they have the fiscal space to pay. I think it's a reasonably good proxy, but if a country is bearing a lot of sovereign debt and has to pay a lot in debt repayment every year, if a country is facing multiple simultaneous transitions from different aid mechanisms that are constraining its ability to pay for the entirety of things that, that donors are asking, if a government is really struggling to generate effective taxation, it might not be a great metric of fiscal space. That said, I think people are a little bit too quick to dismiss it because it does give you, at least as a crude proxy, a sense of the overall government's ability to pay. That doesn't mean it's perfect, but I think, again, coming back to the priorities ditch, it tells you whether the failure to reach the poorest and most marginalized, is that an absolute resource constraint? They just don't have the money, or is it a priorities constraint? They are choosing not to spend their money on that. And if it's the latter, that's a very different problem than the former. You ended your conversation with us today by talking about the goal of universal health coverage, or at least sort of where we should aim to get to. Is it a bit too early to start talking about universal health coverage in developing countries? No. <laughs> so that's my short answer. My longer answer is that I think it's important to start talking very early on about universal health coverage, because it creates the conditions to build out a bigger, more sophisticated, more comprehensive system over time. If you start just working on vertical programs and you say, okay, this country is too poor for universal health coverage, we're just going to do HIV, people don't stop having diabetes. People don't stop having heart failure. They still have these conditions. They're still seeking treatment and health services. But of course, they're going to the private sector. They're paying out of pocket they're falling into poverty as a result. Just because you don't acknowledge that these conditions are problems doesn't mean they're not being paid for somewhere in your health system. So I think what's really useful about starting the UHC conversation early is it gets governments and donors thinking about the entirety of the population's health need, the entirety of financing that's coming in, both from government, domestic, resource mobilization, but also from international assistance, and having a better, more cohesive conversation about how that should all be structured, how it can all work together, versus every individual donor are saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. It's creating the conversation and the opportunity to have a broader conversation about what kind of health system you're building towards and how everyone can be a partner in starting to create it. Great. Well, Rachel, thanks for coming in and having that conversation with us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about CID's research and events, please visit cid.harvard.edu. See you next week.